Hey everyone, I'm Jen Garrett and welcome to the Move the Ball podcast. On this podcast, we are going to talk about how to succeed in business and in life by putting winning strategies into practice to help you advance faster. So if you're looking to move forward and reach that next level of greatness, then you are in the right place. Now get ready. Let's suit up, show up and move the ball. Hey everyone, Jen Garrett here. It's so great to be back with you on another episode of Move the Ball. Today, inside the huddle with us and ready to help us to move the ball is Olympia Scott. Olympia is the first woman to win two WNBA championships with two different teams, doing so in 2005 with the Sacramento Monarchs and in 2007 with the Phoenix Mercury. Prior to playing 10 seasons in the WNBA and 11 seasons in six different European countries, she was a four-year starter for Stanford University for the women's basketball team where she earned a BA in sociology, was a team captain, all Pac-10, All-American, and a finalist for the Naismith Player of the Year Award. She was inducted into the Stanford University Hall of Fame in 2013, and now Olympia wears multiple hats as an entrepreneur, published author, motivational speaker, executive recruiter, certified master life coach, and a proud mother of three. Olympia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jen. I'm so excited to chat with you for a number of reasons. I think we're going to have just so many different things to talk about today. You are the first uh, guest that I've had on the show that has played women's professional basketball. So I'm really excited to have you on. So, so last month, you know, there was the NFL draft, which was pretty amazing for me to see since I, I did a path to the draft series of my podcast and many of the, the young men got picked up by NFL teams. And you're familiar with a very different kind of draft, the WNBA draft, where you were drafted as the number 11th overall pick, second round in the 1998 WNBA draft by the Utah Stars. What was that experience like for you? Well, of course, I mean, that's, you know, a culmination of all the work you've been putting in as an amateur, you know, a career that starts in your childhood and to finally realize the dream, especially as a woman with professional uh, sports being new at the time in America. It was a very exciting time. What did you do to celebrate and, and what did you do in the days that followed? Oh, man, to celebrate, I think I bought myself my first car with a uh, with my signing bonus, which was just like a, a little 190E <laughs> Mercedes, but I, I thought I was big stuff. Uh, so that was my celebration. I didn't have a car at the time, so that that was exciting to be able to do it for myself and to just ha have a new car. That, that's fun. But also just celebrating with family and friends. Everyone was excited. Like I said, it was such an exciting time for women's basketball in general, and then to also be a part of it. It was only the second season of the WNBA, only the second draft. So it was very new at that time. Yeah, I'm sure it was just an amazing feeling. Now, one thing I often talk about is the things that you've done thus far in your life have gotten you to where you are today. But if you want to continue to progress and to move the ball forward, you have to change things, do some things differently to get you to where you want to go tomorrow. And so as you prepared to play professional basketball, what changes did you make in your life so that you could excel at that next level? Well, you know, one is understanding it as a profession as opposed to uh, an extracurricular activity. You know, as an amateur in, in high school or in, you know, even in college, it's an extracurricular activity. Your main focus being your studies curriculum. And so as a professional to shift gears into this is what you're doing 
not school, and then this is secondary, but this is what you're doing for a living as a profession. And the fact that the rules have changed, and because it's professional, you're now expendable. It's business. The loyalties aren't the same. I understood that I had to shift into another gear of understanding the wholeness of it, what you put into your body, how much time you put into it, getting in the training room prior to a practice and after, even if it's just maintenance as opposed to an actual injury, just taking it more seriously, you know, taking up, taking it up to another level. Sure. And what was the biggest surprise as you went into this next level where it is a business, as you mentioned, you know, college sports is an extracurricular professional sports. I have a lot of NFL people that have been on the show that talk about that transition and how it's a business. What was the biggest surprise or eye opener for you as you went into this business? I think not so much surprise. I think the biggest challenge maybe was understanding that people were being cut sometimes without our knowledge. You know, you, you grow to be a family. You're putting in so much work together. Uh, basketball teams tend to be fewer than, you know, 15 people. So it's a small group. You're traveling together. Uh, during training camp, you're practicing multiple times a day together. So I think people being cut or being traded in the way that you find out. For me personally, I was actually traded well, it's actually a longer story than what I'm about to tell, but <laughs> I was traded my uh, second year into the league after having my daughter. And uh, I was traded while I was in Los Angeles. I was playing for the Utah Stars. I was in LA for a game against the Sparks. I'm from LA, so my family had bought 50 or more tickets for the game. It's always a big production. Uh, my mother organizes this whole thing. And I was uh, the night before the game, 10 p.m., I got a phone call that I was traded and that I actually had a flight to Detroit the next morning. So I think having the business side of it really slapped me in the face. <laughs> I think that was maybe the biggest surprise the, the first time I was traded. Sure. Uh, yes, that would be surprising and also very frustrating, I'm sure, very hurtful. Your family's spent all these this money on these tickets to come see you play and you just been traded. <laughs> well, it, you know, it's the excitement of, of being home and, and to play in front of family and friends and all of that. And the other aspect of it was that I was the first player to play a professional season, have a baby and then return. So it was also that this was one of my first games being released to play because there was no precedence on when is a woman ready to play professional basketball after <laughs> giving birth to a child. So initially I was on the injured reserve for a little bit, which is a whole nother can of worms I won't unpack for the sake of keeping to this question. But uh, I think it was a combination of I'm finally cleared to play again and I'm home in L.A., except no, you're not. You're on a flight first thing in the morning. <laughs> Sure. Now talk about, so you had a child while you were playing in the league. So you, you were obviously out for that. And then you went back and what was that like? What did, after you gave birth, how did you get back to your competitive, normal athletic self? What was your routine like to get you ready to play again? Well, first I didn't miss any of the season. Actually, I was maybe a few months pregnant at the end of my rookie year. Then I had my daughter a little less than a month before training camp started. So I went back, I had gained 65 pounds in pregnancy and 
only lost about eight of it during birth. So, you know, I was still over 50 pounds overweight and I had to really dig in and do a lot of extra work in order to slim back down because my game was predicated on my athleticism and basketball is a, a running game. It's up and down the floor. So I was doing, we had in training camp, we were doing two practices, two, maybe two and a half to three hour practices a day. In between those two practices, I was lifting weights every day, doing an extra hour on the treadmill. Not to mention the fact that my daughter actually had her days and nights mixed up. So everyone thought she was the sweetest baby because all she did was sleep when they saw her. And of course, she was up all night uh, <laughs> while I needed to rest and recover for another day of uh, essentially three a days because I had to do an extra workout in between because I was trying to drop the weight and, and get myself back in shape. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't I don't miss the days as you're telling the story about your daughter not sleeping at night. I do not miss those days of not getting sleep in the evening or in the early hours of the morning. So let's talk. So you have won two WNBA championships. Talk to us about what was that like winning that first championship? How did that feel? Coincidentally, I was just looking at the pictures of that uh, yesterday, I think. And that was amazing. It may be the pinnacle other than having my kids, you know, as far as in my professional career, the first championship with Sacramento the way we were able to celebrate because it was a home win, you know, the confetti's dropping, you're, you're making eye contact with everyone there, whether it's a teammate, whether, you know, I can remember seeing my mother in the stands, uh, see a confetti and, and just, she, she remember, remembers that the look on my face was like, we did it. We actually did it. You know, it was just like all the pictures show me in this half scream, half like, Oh my gosh, because it was so, just it was just amazing it's the best feeling in the world to know all the work we put in together as a team and that we had a vision that we could do it and to bring that to fruition that is amazing especially when you're doing it with other people sure now you've won another championship with another team how did that i mean it's always great to win a championship right but how did that feel versus the first one you know it's funny because the two championships relied on two polar opposite philosophies of basketball. The championship in Sacramento was based on, you know, we were, we only had one offense. We had to read the defense, but we had one offense. Our focus was on our defense and rebounding. That's what made us special. And so, you know, and the, and the saying goes, you know, offense sells tickets, defense wins games, rebounds win championships. And so that's what we did in Sacramento. Get to Phoenix, the philosophy is the literally the polar opposite. We didn't focus that much on our defense. Of course, we want to rebound, but the focal point was on our offense. It was a run and gun style of offense. If you could get a shot off in the first five seconds of the shot clock, that was fine with him. It was Paul Westhead. You know, many, many coaches in women's basketball want to, you know, have you pass the ball around, work the clock, uh, use some time. And we were just run and gun. We, we broke the record for the uh, average points in the game that year. Just all offense, all offense. And we won. So what was similar, I would say, was that the buy-in was so powerful that in two polarizing philosophies, we were still able to win because of how strong the unit was, how much buy-in we had. But the difference, unfortunately, was that we won on the road in Phoenix 
we played against the Detroit Shock because they were concerned about how the fans would react to their team losing. We didn't really get that celebratory moment on the court. We were rushed off into a room where we were to do the celebration and the, you know, the the trophy presentation and all of that. So it took a little bit away from the moment because I think what made the Sacramento moment so special was that first, I don't, I don't even know how they execute this, but the, the confetti never stops. Right. So it's just you're drowning in a sea of confetti and everyone's there. People have come onto the court, you know, family, friends, media. Everyone is just rejoicing in such a way that it's, you know, it's contagious. Everyone's feeling that same that same energy. We didn't get that moment in Phoenix. So I felt like that took a little bit away from the moment of celebration. But we were we were equally happy. And in both situations, you know, I knew we were going to win. And it started with us having to announce to ourselves and make the goal clear that we want to win, but that we can win and that we're going to do everything in our power at this point forward to make sure we're acting and doing the things that a team that wins championships does. I like that because you can take that off the court and apply that to any life goal or career goal or business goal, right? You have to visualize the outcome that you want, the goal, and then have that confidence that you can achieve that goal. And then it's all about the execution, you know, and and showing up and being willing to put in the work and and execute on game day. Uh, You know, game day is not just a particular, you know, game in our own lives. We have many days that where it's game time. Um, But if you execute what you set out to do and you believe it to be true, then you can, you know, win the championship or the big goals that you have set for yourself outside of the football, the sports context. For sure. And, you know, interestingly, the the first part of it really is that most people are unwilling to truly, truly dare to go to, to set a goal or to dream as big as they'd actually like to. And I say that with this reference in mind, this example, because in Sacramento, I had been traded to Sacramento from the Charlotte Sting. I was happy to be there because of my entire WNBA career. This is the first time I'm able to play this close to home and so close to Stanford. So I was happy to be in California. And the head coach comes to me and says, there's John Wisnett. He comes to me and says, you know, I'm getting a lot of calls about you. People want want, uh, me to trade. They want me to trade you. Uh, Should I, should I do that? And, uh, he was a businessman, so he he really didn't approach it the same way as most basketball coaches. His background wasn't the same with women's basketball. So, you know, he was really asking my advice or what I wanted him to do. And I said to him in that moment, and this was very early in the season, I said, you know, I would I would honestly like to stay because I believe we have all the key ingredients to win a championship. I believe we can win it. And so I, I prefer to stay here. I'm from California. I want to stay with you guys and, and try and win it. And so that was the beginning of what ended up coming to fruition. And coincidentally, I had coined a phrase when we were, I believe, 13 and five. And so we were at a, a, an event and I mentioned, you know, hey, we're 13 and five. Let's let's keep that. No more losses. We're not losing again. 13 and five all the way live. You know, I guess I thought I was a rapper, right? <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, yeah, 13 and five all the way live for the fans. It was an event, you know, an appearance with the fans. They loved it. They were into it. Well, then we lost our sixth game. I mean, we were using this mantra like, you know, all the way live. And I said, well, you know what? It's okay. 
because it's 2005 all the way live. <laughs> so this became came for the season. And it's actually on our championship rings, 2005 all the way live. But I'm only saying that to say that it started with believing we could win that championship. When I mentioned it to teammates, some people, well, I mean, we, we first we have to start with saying we, we can win the conference or we can start with what our actual goal is, which is to win the championship. We can dare to dream that big, set a goal that size, and do what it takes to get there. We're allowed to have a goal at the top of the pile. A lot of people are afraid to do that. And you'd be surprised because think about that. These are people who are at the top of their game. They're at the pinnacle of what they're doing. And even a few of them were hesitant initially to say yes, even though we haven't won the conference, even though we haven't been the top of the pile, we're saying this year we will be. But because we did do that as a group, we we had the buy-in. We were able to do it. It was amazing. It really was amazing. Absolutely. And your mindset is such a huge part of that. As I'm listening to your story, you reminded me about uh, the 85 Chicago Bears who uh, were, uh, you know, they had the Super Bowl shuffle um, mm-hmm. in 85. And a lot of people don't know that they filmed that Maybe Chicago Bears fans know, but a lot of other people (laughs) don't know that the Bears did not film that after they won the Super Bowl. They actually were undefeated. They went to play Miami and they lost to Miami. And that next Monday, they were supposed to record the Super Bowl shuffle. And so here they are, a team that was undefeated, then had this embarrassing loss, and Mm. they were going to then shoot this video saying, you know, hey, we're winning the Super Bowl. And uh, uh, I'm friends with uh, Tyrone Keyes, who played on that team. And so he and I talk about the shuffle all the time and just that season. But they decided to continue on and shoot the video. And they obviously continued and won, you know, the the rest of the season and and then ended up winning the Super Bowl. But it, it definitely started with what your vision is and then the belief that you're going to get there. No, I was going to say, and then the funny second part to that story gets to Phoenix where I'm actually in Russia at the time. My former teammate, uh, Bridget Pettis, who I played with in Indiana, but at this time she's an assistant coach for the Phoenix Mercury. She calls me while I'm in Russia and says, you know, that they need my leadership. I'm like, well, you know, they do have everything they need to win a championship, except me, right? I'm trying to, <laughs> you know, pump myself up, right, of self-promotion. But, you know, feeling like I was potentially the missing ingredient, just leadership in order to get all-stars, league MVPs, Olympic players from multiple countries. This team was full of all-stars, but what was missing was leadership. And so we both did our part with our front offices, which I was with Indiana at the time. She was with, you know, Phoenix, like I mentioned. She talked to the GM in Phoenix. I spoke to our GM. And all I said was I understood if she needed to trade me because I knew someone was going to come asking for a trade. So I just wanted to plant a nice positive seed that it's okay to (laughs) do this transaction. And she did. And so that's where the 2007 championship started in 2006 while I was in Russia playing overseas. And then I was in fact traded. And then we did win that summer in 2007. Gotcha. And I'm glad that you brought up uh, playing overseas because that's where I was going to go next with our conversation was talk to us about what it was like playing overseas versus playing in the WNBA. Oh, wow. There's so many things to, 
I guess I'd start with the basketball. The difference with the basketball would be that, you know, we're dominant in, in many sports. I mean, if you think about the medal counts, every, you know, Olympics or what have you, the USA is one of the leading countries. And in women's basketball, it's no different. We're, we're the dominant sport, uh, the dominant country, excuse me, in, in women's basketball. So as players, we're brought over and only a handful, maybe two or three players from who are required to be on a visa to work in the country are allowed to be on a team. So you're there almost like the, you know, the Michael Jordan or the LeBron or Kobe of their team. You're brought in and, you know, so then there's a lot of responsibility as well, but it's a good way for WNBA players to stay in shape, to play competitively, to also improve because your role may be different overseas than in the WNBA. If you're, you know, the bench is is deep in the WNBA. Not everyone is in the same role they were in college. So playing overseas gives them that opportunity to still shine and to, you know, just sharpen their skills and, and maintain their confidence. Business-wise, it's, it's a whole nother world. You know, there's so many uh, stories of people not being paid, definitely not being paid on time. Some people not being paid. Culturally, the differences depends on the country. I have a thousand hilarious stories I could tell. Depends on which direction we want to go <laughs> with this. But it's definitely a different world. But it's one that you can appreciate the experience because it's you're not passing through as a tourist. You're actually living there as one of them. You know, when, when they say when in Rome, do as the Romans do, this is the best opportunity to get that type of experience because you're living there. So you're learning the language, you're eating the food, you're immersed in the culture, your teammates and you, it's a sisterhood with with players that you otherwise wouldn't even be able to communicate with. But between learning the language, charades and the fact that basketball is universal, that's the universal language that we all connect through. It makes for a very interesting experience that I would recommend to any professional athlete who has the opportunity. Great. I appreciate you sharing that. So let's talk about uh, the time has come to you know transition off the court. How was that transition like for you? And how did you position yourself to be successful beyond the game? You know, I think fortunately for me, two things prepared me to prepare for after the game. One, both of my parents, you know, are college professors and, you know, education is, is of the utmost importance in our house. They were both have experience in corporate America. And so for me, my role models being my parents, they were, you know, prominent in the community. They were go-getters and they were ambitious and always prefaced sports as a vehicle to an education or as a vehicle as opposed to the end-all be all. And so I think that helped because I was always thinking that this was going to be transitory because even the best player still has a lifespan on their game. So that, and then I, I was injured. I tore my ACL in 2003 and this was at the height of my career, tore my ACL and I never fully regained all of my athleticism. Now I still played years after that, but I was a different player and my role changed completely. And I think that also helped me to be aware of the fact that I need to be thinking in terms of the transition. So that's how super parenting came about, partially how super parenting came about, because it was a outgrowth of the I had a fan club and I did basketball clinics and I did those for the kids and for their parents, because my mother was a 
also a volunteer certified parenting instructor. She would do a parenting seminar on raising athletes, on parenting athletes in particular. So it was this marriage of the parents had something to do while the players had something to do. And, you know, after we were doing those camps, we said, wait a second, maybe we should focus more on the parenting because the parents really loved the fact that that was an added bonus. Most camps didn't have that. So then that's where we started to focus on super parenting, which also helped me to transition out of basketball that I was already working on a parenting education company because it's one of the things we do that requires no certification whatsoever. Just have kids and uh, go figure it out. Hope you get it right. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about something that you're doing now. You uh, have this uh, company changing the game coaching where you focus on life coaching for winning at the game of life the right way. Talk to us about some of the services that you provide as part of this, uh, this offering. Sure. You know, first, I'd want to start with the name, you know, changing the game, right? Most people, when you're talking about the game of life, most people are racing and running and competing. We've learned to set goals and achieve them, be successful, but we're often competing against others. You know, the the game we're playing is one that's individual. Our goal is to be our best selves. I'm not out here trying to be the best Jen Garrett, you know, let me hop on my podcast and move the ball next. No, I have to be the best Olympia I can be. And I think the, the first part of it is you have to change the game, change the focus, understand your own purpose and what gifts you bring to the table. Because whatever we've been blessed with, they're actually, these gifts are in service to the people we're with. We're not gifted our talents and skills and our motivation and our drive to do something so that we can benefit ourselves. So we can say, ah, look at me, <laughs> look how I'm doing it. No, not at all. What we bring is in service to our community. You know, the blessings we receive are deliveries, right? The, the blessing of a good daughter, I have to deliver to my mother. The blessing of a good mother, I have to deliver that to my kids. The blessing of a good podcast, right now, I have to be a good interviewee. I have to <laughs> I have to bring that, just like you're having to bless me with this opportunity. We're actually delivering blessings. And I think if we change the game and frame our own lives in that manner, it gives much more purpose, but then it allows us to understand that we have purpose in every moment, in everything that we're doing. And when you can live a purpose-driven life and and focus on your assignment, you can get so much done and be so much happier. You can thrive as opposed to getting caught in the rut of unconscious behaviors. A lot of us go through life on autopilot. We're not deciding half of our day. You know, how do we live consciously? How do we live a life on purpose, full of purpose? It's that, you know, just like the, the great players in the world have coaches, we also could benefit from a coach, from someone who understands the tools and has been trained in how to help someone go to the next level. So that that's really the focus for changing the game coaching, which includes either one-on-one coaching, it includes group coaching sessions, it includes live events, and also trainings. And this is not geared towards, oftentimes people have a specific niche where it's only a specific audience. The audience, Uh, for changing the game coaching is anyone who is ready to change the game, anyone who is ready for change in their life or to discover their purpose or to move to the next level, uh, just wanting to live a better life. 
Great. And you can, for everyone listening, Olympia is fantastic. And I know the services that she provides, the coaching is just top notch. So if you want to check her out, you can go to changingthegamecoaching.com and we will have that link in the show notes as well. But definitely uh, check out her services and, and make sure that you change your game and really take your performance to the next level. So I want to do what's called my two-minute drill, where I ask you seven just fun questions. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> All right, here we go. So what's your favorite food? Shrimp. Okay. How about what's your favorite movie? Either for the longest, it was Avatar. It's Avatar. But now maybe Black Panther creeping in there. Okay. I have not seen Avatar, but I have seen Black Panther many times. And it's one that I like very much. How about what's your favorite professional sports team? This goes back to my childhood, the Lakers. There Showtime you go. Lakers. <laughs> yes. My son is a big Lakers fan. So, because we used to live out in, in California. So, uh, we used to go to, to Laker games. Uh, how about what is the best piece of advice you've gotten from a coach or a mentor? One piece was inadvertent. It wasn't necessarily advice, it was a command. Tara used to yell, finish. Because when I first got to Stanford, I guess I'd make what she called a million dollar move, but a nickel shot because I'd missed the shot. <laughs> so she'd always be yelling, finish, finish. And it's funny because it's not until years later that I realized the magnitude of what she was really saying, which was bigger than finishing the shot, right? It's finish. It's finish what you start. No matter if you started a thousand things, if you finished none of them, finish, you know, just finish. That, that was a key key one that I heard all quite, quite often, too often, actually. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. How about let's flip it now. What is the best piece of advice that you would give to someone? Discover your purpose, whether if you're thinking on the macro, like what is your life's purpose in general, but also the purpose of the moment you find yourself in. Oftentimes we're in an uncomfortable situation or maybe a rut or something that we would like changed and people can wish their lives away. Well, when I get to next week or next year or when I get that new job or when, as opposed to living in the moment, there is purpose in your current circumstances, in your current moment, whether you're learning a lesson, whether you're gaining expertise, you know, whether you're being strengthened or whether it's just that you're being given a testimony that when it's your turn to help someone else out, they will listen because you have walked a mile in their shoes. Right. Yeah, I really like that to uh, to find your purpose. And I think when you have that, you're able to bring a better version of yourself, a more whole person of yourself to each and every moment because you have that clarity of purpose. Yes, yes, for sure. All right, so I got two more questions in the seven. The next one is, what is one thing that most people don't know about you? Uh, I would say my undercover nerd status. I say undercover, undercover just because people think, you know, when they see me, they're not thinking nerd right away. They're thinking, oh, she's tall. She played basketball, you know, these different things. And I'm actually quite nerdy. I mean, I wear it like a badge of honor. I'm proud. So I'm not trying to be undercover per se, but I just think that's not the first thing people realize about me. But if you knew me in my private life, you know, I spend far too long trying to figure out things that most people would just pay someone else to do. <laughs> Got it. Okay. And then the, the last question is, if you could be any superhero, who would you be and why? 
Okay, I had a tie between either Iron Man or I guess Iron Woman, you know, because of all the technology he gets to interact with to, to be a superhero. Like, I just, that's my undercover nerd. Like, I wish I could just hop in a, a robot and, and do all that stuff <laughs> and fly off, right, and save the world. But then the other one would be Superwoman. I think just because of all of the, um, you know, so many superpowers that, you know, she's able to help in a multitude of ways, right? Sure. And I would say Iron Man, Iron Woman, if it were me. So I am aligned with you. Um, And I don't watch a lot of TV, but if I'm looking for like a good movie just to kind of veg on, I do like to watch the Iron Man movies. So I and I love the technology piece of it. So I'm a little nerdy like that, too. (laughs) So there's one other question that I was going to ask you earlier. I mean, you and I have been on many, many phone calls talking about good leadership and how, you know, that's important if you really want to be able to move the ball. And so if you had to pick your top three qualities for what you say makes a great leader, what would those three be? First and foremost, adopting the mentality of servant leadership. You know, the leader is serving the needs of the group. The group needs leadership. But if if you're not concerned with who gets the credit, then you can be of the utmost service to the group you're serving. So I would say, first and foremost, servant leadership. I would say uh, honesty, you know, character. You have to have integrity. If you operate with integrity with people, they have to appreciate that. Honesty and integrity are always appreciated. And then I would also say uh, being a good teammate. You know, oftentimes people look at leadership as someone who's out front or above everyone and everyone's below them or, you know, part of their flock. But at the end of the day, wherever you position this leader, whether you say servant leadership, maybe leading from behind, whether you say within the crowd, you know, whether you say out front, either way, the leader is also a part of the team. And so even in a position of leadership must be an excellent teammate. You must be the teammate you want all of your team members to be. You have to lead by example. So. Well, I like those. Those are all yeah, very, very good ones, especially, you know, being a leader doesn't always mean you are the hard charging person at the forefront. You're in the position that your team needs you to be to lead from that element and, and help the team to move the ball. So I, I really like that. I know that's something that you firmly believe in it and, and do. You're like, hey, wherever you need me, you know, put me in. Well, and I'm, I'm here to serve. And coincidentally, I mean, I that's how I learned part of my purpose. You know, uh, basketball sports is a profession. It's a career you start in your childhood. There aren't too many that you could say that about. Sports is one of them. And when I tore my ACL, I went from being a starter playing nearly 40 minutes, you know, the entire game to being relegated at the end of the bench. And I discovered that even though I wasn't playing, my teammates were still looking to me for answers, looking to me for leadership, looking to me to see my reaction to everything. I was still influential with the group, even though I wasn't playing. Well, all this time, I was thinking my leadership came from me being the best player on the team and physically leading the charge, right? Being out front, leading the charge, visibly leading the charge and getting credit for leading the charge. But once I recognized I still was in a leadership position, I understood my purpose, that I still had to be the leader and I could be the leader that everyone understood was genuine because the only the only thing I get out of the situation is if we collectively win. Right. I have no motive other than the win. If I'm not in the game, I can't I can't say, well, hey, just pass me the ball, (laughs) you know, and then we'll win the game. Well, no, there's no individual motive here. So I learned and this is actually how I won the two championships, because 
I was in a position to lead from behind. And not too many people will accept that challenge, especially if you have an ego. You know, if your name is, I mean, come on, my name's Olympia, right? I'm thinking <laughs> I'm supposed to lead the charge. So this was a blow to my ego. But because I'm spiritual and because I understood God didn't have me there for nothing, right? There was purpose in that moment for me. And the purpose was for me to discover I didn't have to have healthy needs to be a leader. I'm a leader because I was born a leader. And that's part of my purpose and part of my call. And so that's where I learned servant leadership because my name wasn't in lights. And other than the people in the locker room, nobody knows how much influence I had over those championships. But I'm okay with that because I still have two NFL Super Bowl size championship rings to show for the efforts. <laughs> sure. And that's a great story because I, I think, you know, no matter whether you're, you know, on the bench or, you know, prime time uh, in a role, we all should be leaders. Title doesn't mean anything. All of us need to be leaders and focus on how we can best serve the teams that we're on so that, again, we can move the ball and, and make the team successful and win. Well, Olympia, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you and having you on. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, I'd, be, I'd love to come back anytime, although I wouldn't have seven different answers probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, we would love having you on anytime. And thanks again to everyone for listening. And we will talk to you in the next episode. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already done so, so that you never miss an episode. Until next time, make sure that you suit up, you show up, and you move the ball. Thank you for listening to Move the Ball. To see more about what I'm up to and how I can help you to move the ball, check out my website at www.jenniferagarrett.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And also, Join the Move the Ball Facebook group for even more content and to be a part of the Move the Ball movement.